Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future Space. I'm your host, Daniel Fox. Our guest today is Dr. Chris Buschheisen, aka DJ Dr. Crispy. Chris is a space and deep tech investor in Silicon Valley. In October of 2021, he flew to space on board Blue Origin's New Shepard Flight NS-18, along with Star Trek legend William Shatner. He is the co-founder and former CTO of Planet and former space mission architect at NASA Ames Research Center. Chris, well, Dr. Crispy, welcome to the future space. Hi, Daniel. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I'm really looking for this conversation. And before we get into your experience uh, going up to space and all the stuff that you're working on right now, could you share with us three words that for you capture the essence of space? I'd say because it's there. That's that's the real reason for me. Because it's there? Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to elaborate a little bit or would it? Would yeah, it well, yeah, I mean, I think when I was young, I used to spend a lot of time trying to justify why we should go to space and what are the reasons. And, you know, space has always sort of been victim to this, well, you know, shouldn't we be looking after life on Earth sort of dilemma? And I realized ultimately that dilemma is not solvable. You can't reconcile those differences because I don't really think there is any. And so it's a kind of like what they call a false dichotomy, right? We sh should we go to space or should we not? And I've sort of now convinced myself that space is just an extension of our world. It's not any different than here and we're not choosing one or the other. And so I just think like all great explorations, we, we're going because it's there and we need to see. And I think that's a human urge or human drive. And it's very human for us to go to space. It's not sort of uh, contrary to other needs or pressures on Earth. It's actually part of our response to those pressures. So I think it's, it's, that's why we go, because it's there. I agree 100%. I mean, it's, that is the dual purpose of life. Life goes where it can go. And if, and if it cannot go, it's not because it doesn't want to. It's because it hasn't figured out how to get to these places. But ultimately, the human species is that medium of going beyond and above and taking life to these new places. And now we're about to go to space and continue spreading life. Because it would be, I mean, not that I want to give the planet or life a personality, but it would be a shame of spending billions of years in, in, in increasing complexity to ultimately remain on one single dot in this vast universe. I mean, it's if once once you get out of this planet, then there's an entire galaxy to continue and spread. So absolutely, because it's there. Now, there's, if you look into the media or if you look into the investment world, there is obviously a science story of going to space. There's a technology uh, story of going to space. There, the economic story of going to space. And I think we've, we've touched a little bit just by what you said, but going deeper, what do you think is the human story of going to space for you? Well, I, I think the human story is actually just beginning. And I think by, depending on how you count, we've got between 635 and 650 humans that have gone to space. So I'm going to say something really radical and controversial. In the scheme of human beings that have ever existed and ever lived on this planet, the fraction that have gone to space is basically zero. It's a rounding error of the I don't know if you count how many some people estimate since human species became human um, with 100,000, 200,000 years ago, a million years ago, the number of human beings that have lived is probably of order 100 billion. And so the 600 that have gone to space are a rounding error. And in a way, it's almost as if you know the human race just hasn't been to space. But I think that's changing. And what what excited me about the suborbital flights that we maybe we can talk about sort of what the future looks like in a bit. What excites me about that is it's the first time that ordinary people get to go to space. And I think that's the beginning of humanity going to space and all of the, you know, the highly trained government astronauts that went before are almost just like exceptions to the rule. They're special cases. So we've only gone, human, humanity has only gone to space in certain special cases in highly constructed situations. And at large, we haven't gone. And I'm hoping that suborbital flight soon to become orbital 
uh, flight at large numbers is the beginning of humanity actually going. And then I, so I think the human story in space has yet to be written. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it kind of follows the same trajectory of usual um, transportation technology. I mean, I mean, if, if we look at plane, you know, originally at the beginning, it was only extreme, like pilots who with the proper, you know, with the extreme training or with the advent, the, the, the sense of adventure to risk, you know, because it was a really risky endeavor to get up in the air. And now no one really thinks about it other than just buying your plane ticket. We're about to enter an era where space, there's a future ahead of us where there's going to be millions of people living in space. And there will be a time where it is as ren I mean, as normal, that's just basically buying your, your ticket either to go to the moon. And I'm, I'm personally, I'm looking forward for that day. I assume, I assume that you're looking forward that day too. Yeah, it's actually really interesting because I think we we do take you know international travel for granted now. In fact, we're just bored on planes and we want to watch which movies we're going to watch. Um, but that wasn't always the case, right? I, I, as someone growing up in Australia, I remember in my childhood, as a child in the '80s, still my elder relatives were still showing their Super 8 films and slideshows from their trips in the '60s and '70s. If you were in Australia and you had flown to Europe in the 60s or 70s, you were a local hero. Like that was unheard of. And people wanted to hear about it and, 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 and see, see that. And I've seen some of these slideshows numerous times because those were really big events in their lives. And even my, my parents, when they emigrated from Holland to Australia in the, in the um, early 1960s, dad pulled out recently his... Um, his, his, his boarding pass and tickets. He still had the tickets and the itinerary for his trip. And it was like something out of Indiana Jones. I have always assumed they got on a long haul plane and flew direct to Australia from Europe, but they didn't. It was like 11 stops. They flew to Rome and, and, and then to like somewhere else in, 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 in North Africa. And then eventually they stopped in Karachi and then Singapore and then somewhere else, and it was literally like an Indiana Jones film where they went dot, 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 all the way to get to Australia, and he had the meal tickets and everything for the whole flight still. And I was like, that's what it was like. I had no idea how far we've come. And so this idea that now that we can just get on a 747 and be bored for 15 hours to fly somewhere, it's amazing how, we've, how far we've come with that story. And so I think I'm hopeful that human space exploration is on a similar trajectory that maybe... You know, if you think from the Wright brothers, like 1904-ish to the 747, it was about 50 or 60 years. Um, 50 or 60 years from now, we might, you know, have the first people that are bored going to the moon. And I actually welcome that. I think that's actually a sign that that we've built something really important. Oh, me too. It's I'm, I'm actually looking forward that day. And that, that's a bit controversial. Not everybody agrees on that. But I'm looking forward that day when I'm going to look up and we're going to be seeing lights or some sign of settlement on the moon. Because for me, it's going to be that it's going to be that 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 um, clear indication that we've gone beyond the planet. Like this is where we are. This is like the accomplishment that needed to happen. And every time that you look up, you have this reminder. Because I mean, if you know the the International Space Station, unless you have a telescope, you can't really see it. Um, there's nothing really that when you look up, you can see other than the satellites, but it's not, you know, it's just a tiny dot. But if you look up and you see on the moon indication of civilization of human civilization, it's this really this obvious reminder that how far we become, I mean, not uh, too long ago, I was flying over New York, looking out the window and seeing, you know, at night, the sprawling of light and in the back of my mind, like just 300 years ago, New York was just, you know, a city. Not, I mean, it was just about to, 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 to become this settlement. And the person, the, the first European who landed and went to New York would never even conceive that one day this would become a city of skyscrapers and I would be flying over in the place where I can watch movies, I eat and I go to the bathroom and I'm taking images on the phone that can connect me to anywhere around the world. Like the idea of the future was so like impossible to imagine. So what is that future for us that is 
hard to conceive. I mean, what what do you think that for you is this future that we, that is hard for us to imagine right now? Yeah, well, I really like what you're saying about having some kind of permanent presence on the moon in a way that I'd never thought of before, which is being able to look up to it and connect to that. Because you're right, the International Space Station, you know, I love to run outside and see it when it's going overhead, but you've got to time it just right and it's a bright ball and it flies past in about four minutes and then it's over. And I don't think that gives people enough time to really contemplate what that is and what that means. And if you can go out on a dark night and look up and see the lights in the shadow of the moon, you know, maybe the moon's a quarter moon and the the settlement is actually in the dark for, you know, then at their lunar nighttime, but the lights are on, we can see that. And I think that is a way for, I can, I'm imagining young people like, you know, my former self looking up at that and going, yeah, there's people there. I want to go there. And for that to be a reality, I, I think that's a really profound concept. Um, and I, thanks for sharing that. Um, similar to that one that I thought of that doesn't quite achieve the same level of, of connection, but I think is a good sort of starting point is to even just have a colony of maybe a hundred people in, um, in low earth orbit. Um, and why I picked a hundred, a hundred is a special number because if it's 10, we talked earlier about special cases. So if you've got a space station of 10 people, I think it's very easy to do everything as if it's the one time only special case. They need food. We'll bring them some food. We need to get an astronaut up or an astronaut down. We can get them up and down, but it's not normal. It's not routine and it's not, um, it's not, uh, systematic and sustainable. Now, as an ex extreme example, let's say I had a million people living in space. Well, clearly we'd have, uh, you know, transport, cargo transport, FedEx services, um, medical supply, medical up, uh, evacuations, um, routine passenger transport up and down for people to get on and off, um, fresh food deliveries, water and air being replenished, maintenance ships going up and down. There'd be all of this infrastructure. So somewhere between a space station of five or 10 people that is a one-off special case and a million, there has to be a number in the middle where we get start to get some of those benefits of permanence. And I think the number for me is about 100 because you can't cheat anymore if you've got 100 people. You've got to actually build the stuff. 1,000, maybe definitely 100. I think it's just big enough. 20, you can still kind of cheat. So I think maybe, yeah, for me, a space station of 100 people where you know you've got to build the infrastructure or else those people are going to have a bad day. Um, and I think that, to me, is the tipping point where then we could, like, build the rest. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that there is, with the International Space Station and having this very limited group of chosen people, it's been kind of easy to see, to say, oh, you know, um, cooperation that go beyond the, 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 the borders, you know, it can be, it can be achieved, but it's much easier when you have a selected group of people who share the common training and the common goal, it becomes the, the, the complexity of, of relationships and, and behaviors and attitude, and obviously not always being in the same kind of mood increases with the amount of people and a hundred people is a lot harder to manage than just four or five. Um, so yeah, totally, totally agree with you. Um, Chris was, was space always like this attraction for you? I mean, even when you were young as a kid, was it this kind of North star that kept leading, you know, guiding you? I oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, a lot of my earliest memories are just of space things. Like I remember playing with space Legos, was obsessed with them from ages four through 40. Um, <laughs> um, I remember watching Carl Sagan's Cosmos, um, which for anyone who's seen the Neil deGrasse Tyson version, there was an older original version um, by a great scientist and thinker named Carl Sagan. Um, and, you know, I think I used to be able to just like stay up past my bedtime and watch this show. So I was like six or seven years old and I was allowed to watch, stay up late and watch this show because it was important. And I think that really, stuck with me um, as an important thing that this guy talking about science and the universe and stuff, it really inspired me. Um, yeah. And I just, to this kind of point about like, it's always there. 
to me, it's just seemed natural that we could go to space. It didn't seem otherworldly to me either. It just seemed kind of ordinary. And I was just baffled. Like, why, why can't we go? <laughs> like, it's, it's just right there. Um, so for me, I've, it, it just seemed natural um, to go there. I never assumed any otherwise. Did you, um, did you want to be an astronaut, uh, but then couldn't do it? So then you ended up going a different way uh, about it? Yeah, um, that's exactly what happened. So I, I think, you know, when I was a teenager, I didn't have a great blueprint of what to do. I knew, I knew I wanted to go to space, but wasn't sure how. And the only role models I had were um, two earlier Australian astronauts who had become Americans and got transferred to NASA and then went to space. Um, Paul Scully Power and, um, and Andy Thomas. So um, I was like, okay, that's the blueprint. So I went to join the Australian Air Force thinking I'll be a test pilot and then get transferred to the US Air Force and then get transferred to NASA and then get trained as a shuttle pilot and then go to space which is, that's my, that's my business plan at age 17. Um, and then uh, I, I, I found out I was colorblind and they, they dismissed me. <laughs> so I actually didn't know, uh, and it's actually not that bad, but um, it wasn't bad enough that, you know, if I'm in a fighter plane and they're like, push the green button and I push the red button. Yeah, you know, it's a bad day for everybody. So they didn't want me as a pilot. Um, and And so I had to go, uh, you know, find a plan B. And so ultimately I became a scientist because I thought, well, studying the universe and studying physics would be a great way for me to like problem solve how to get my butt to space basically. And that's what I did. And you got your PhD, by the way, that was uh, Chris Hatfield, uh, same business plan. It was, uh, it was in Canada and there was no direct way in Canada to become an astronaut. And he looked into doing exactly what you just elaborated, going to the States, becoming a pilot. The only difference is that he was not colorblind. So he was able to continue uh, with the yeah. business plan. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a unique business plan and, um, but it's a well-trodden path. So, um, but you know, I'm actually glad that I, I, I went on this alternative path because I actually, I don't know if I would have enjoyed my life in the military. Um, now as an adult, I realize, you know, my personality is, is, you know, obviously if I joined, I probably would have been fine with it, but I'm glad in one sense that I didn't, um, because I got to build some really cool stuff and I, you know, I got to, to work in, um, civil space instead and, you know, work, getting, working at, at NASA, um, as a contract employee was, was a real, um, opportunity for an Australian and I really, I love that job. And we got to build some cool things. And then Planet Labs, obviously, you know, I, I don't think I would have built that if I'd been in the Air Force with the commitments that would have come with being an officer and, and a career a career officer in, in, in the armed forces. So in a way, I kind of, this other path turned out to be a very rich and rewarding one as well. So, What was the, um, the, the motivation of the vision after leaving NASA to form Planet Labs? Well, there's a uh, cause and effect uh, uh, backwards there. So um, we left NASA because we couldn't build this thing at NASA. Um, and so we had launched a project called PhoneSat where we took an ordinary Android phone and we put it in space as kind of like a, this is kind of common knowledge today, but 15 years ago, people didn't really know if consumer electronics would work in space. And so we were crazy enough to think, well, let's just put devices in space and see if they work. And instead of running hundreds of lab experiments and years and years and years of research was like, it's actually just cheaper to put it in space. And so we put some Android phones into orbit as free flying satellites and they actually worked. They worked for an entire week, took photos and they radioed them down. We wrote an app and then we got the photos down from space straight from the Android phone. And I'm like, well, seems like the stuff works in space. And these days, of course it does. When no one even questions that anymore. But at the time, we're like, the radiation is going to get it. The heat is going to get it. The vacuum is going to make it break. And like none of those things happened. Um, so we got excited by this idea because like, wow, why are we spending millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars on radiation hardened, um, you know, satellite components when we could just buy them for $500 at the local electronics shop? Like, why are we doing this? And so we went to NASA headquarters and said, hey, we've got this great way to build space missions, significantly cheaper. Do you want to build some of your flagship science missions this way? And they're like, no, this is not credible. Um, 
so we left and started a company to do it. And then Planet um, is uh, used to be Planet Labs. Now it's Planet, and Planet kind of really changed the 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 world of satellites. Correct? Yeah, in a way. Um, before Starlink was launched, I think we that's Elon Musk's um, SpaceX's um, communication system. Before that, Planet actually had the largest constellation of satellites at, at around 500 or so launched, um, maybe more now. And that was because they were so cheap, but they weren't crappy. So what we were able to do was kind of move um, into a new corner of like ultra low cost electronics, but still really highly capable. And so we were building really, really good satellites that actually if you get like your computer like your, your macbook pro when you open it up and you look how much stuff is packed inside that ch chassis right it's really densely packed electronics there's all the stuff the battery the power of charging you know the graphics card the sound all of it is squeezed into this tightly designed package so we realized if we just design satellites like that we can get a lot of stuff in it it's going to work really well it's going to be really extremely capable it's going to be very robust it'll survive launch and so that, we kind of built satellites as if they were laptops is ultimately what we did. And that allowed us to build them very cheap, very quickly and in large numbers, which no one had really done before. Um, so that was sort of like the big change, I think, that people realized that you could build constellations of satellites for significantly less than billions, that, which is what they would have cost in the past. Do you think, I mean, looking back at your time at NASA and what NASA is today, do you think that the culture... Mm -hmm. What prevented you from doing that today might be different today. Would NASA, uh, would the NASA of today be more open to these kind of innovations now that SpaceX kind of proved to them that it was possible and, and companies, you know, projects like you, you did at Planet Labs actually proved that you were right. Do you think that the culture at NASA has changed over the years? A little bit. Um, a great example is the um, Ingenuity helicopter on um, on Mars. I think that project was to some extent run in this way, where they were like, let's build the thing, let's have really low expectations, it's not the primary mission. Um, if it doesn't work, that's okay. But if it does work, it's going to be amazing. And now they're at 40 or 50 plus flights um, on Mars. The thing was supposed to have died a few months ago, but it's still working now um, and they're still flying it. And so it's amazing. And that that project was definitely built in, in this spirit of it's low stakes and we're not going to break anything if it doesn't work. Um, so let's try it. Um, but one thing that does happen at NASA is um, once, and this is still, still the case, once something works, NASA has a tendency to want to perfect it. Now, if they launch a second helicopter, I bet you it's going to be 10 times the price because they're going to forget all of the lessons of how the first one worked and they're going to go, well, it's an important mission now. We promise we're going to fly a helicopter on Mars. We're going to have to do it. It's got to work. It's now mission critical. And once it becomes a mission, M with a capital M, a lot of oversight tends to come into play at NASA and they'll want to perfect everything and have more reviews and more design and more testing. And maybe they're going to make it a little more ambitious, but that has to be tested too. And so the cost will go up. So NASA missions tend to get a bit slow and heavy as they, as they mature, um, which is one of the, I think the important lessons we had at Planet was to never let that happen. Planet was really disciplined about staying true to those um, kind of skunk works roots and every mission should be still skunk works in trying to keep that as, as a pattern versus forgetting it the second time. So it's a bit of both. Interesting. I still, I mean, it's, it's in, incredible to think and really to, to process what it means that we have a, dr a drone on Mars, uh, flying and still flying. I mean, the, the, like, I think more and more we take for granted that those technologies, but to really kind of absorb and process what it means. And, and it changes totally the, the, the idea of exploration, right? Because before, you know, when I, last year, when I was uh, uh, up in, uh, in the Arctic or Antarctica, I'm always reminded that there were some, there were humans who actually died in the process of exploring these places because their knowledge was, no, I mean, they didn't, they didn't know about the, the, the moving of the ice. They didn't know the weather. If they wanted to, to, to know about the weather, they physically had to be there 
to capture to to record the the uh, the, the weather. Now we uh, with these technologies with these machines that can gather the information for us before we do show up. So when we do show up, there's going to be a lot less risk of uh, human cost because of the knowledge already that we have. So from, I mean, there's, there's an era of exploration that is, that is going to be absolutely amazing because of these technologies. Um, you might, it's, it's that like, if, if going to first of all, if you had the opportunity of going to Moon or going to to Mars, would you would you take it? Um, actually, not sure. Um, so my my real motivation has always been sustainable space presence. That's really what I care about. And you know, I talked before about this hundred person space station, where the idea of that is part of it is that people are going up and down and there and back and I, I like Earth. I want to come back to Earth. Um, so really what I want to achieve is that we can go routinely. So am I a Mars person where I just want to go to Mars? No, because I don't think Mars right now is really within reach in a sustainable way. And so it doesn't meet my criteria for what I want to work on. Um, if we had all the things built and somehow in my lifetime, we, we managed to get in space transport and, and, you know, hundreds of thousands of people living and working in different locations in, in space. Of course I go to Mars. I think that'd be, I'd love it. Um, but I'm not a Mars zealot or acolyte like many other people. I think, um, Mars doesn't, is not a helpful short-term step to getting sustainable, uh, presence in space. No, I think, I mean, agree. I, th I think that for me, Going to Mars would be interesting once it the human experience of it becomes more attractive, but the idea of just roughing it and going with bare bones and just to this place. Uh, at, when when I when I was younger and I was doing solo wilderness expeditions, maybe, but now as I'm getting older, it's not necessary. I want I want to just have a better experience. Um, so. Well, actually, just before the, the the call dropped here a second, we were talking about um, your realization that, you know, in, in Arctic exploration, for instance, many people had died. And um, that's a really good point. And certainly because of, you know, our history of using taxpayer dollars to send government-funded astronauts into space um, and not wanting to fail at that, there's definitely a reluctance to let people die at all. But I can promise you when there's a million people in space, some statistically normal number of those are going to die from any number of incidents, whether it be old age, um, you know, sl slips in the bathtub um, in Martian gravity or, or work-related injuries or death due to, you know, equipment failure. There will be a normal number of deaths occurring there. And so in between, it's kind of silly to think that we won't allow any deaths. And I'm not saying we should be hyper aggressive and, and put people's lives at risks but uh, you know there were large numbers of early um explorers who in the arctic and antarctic who just got stuck and watched their ships get crushed in the ice and just waited there and you know you have heroic stories like shackleton getting all the way out to elephant island and 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 and, and rescuing his crew but those weren't the majority right um and it, it, there's there is risk and i and i think one of the things about allowing humanity to go is that when we start going in large numbers we will make a larger number of mistakes but also make a larger number of discoveries and we'll we'll get there the the way we actually always have which is we'll just keep trying and keep trying and more people will go and more people will be enticed to do it by the risk and the reward and that's what it is it's a balance of risk and reward and when we have these selective government programs, the risk reward equation is a very conservative one. Um, so I think, yeah, I just welcome humanity going to space and making all of the human mistakes that we make. I'm looking for, there's a future where we're going to have, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people up in space uh, where the human's population keeps increasing. And the number of people that wake up every morning trying to find solutions gets bigger and bigger and the the quality the the, the amount of not the knowledge that they're going to be looking to find solutions 
Um, for me, I have a responsibility to make that happen just because for the same reason that today I exist because of other pioneers who decide to risk everything and cross an ocean or and continue to, to find these places where they could create, you know, the, the, the a new society or continue the, the human experience. So I do feel that I have a responsibility today. Um, Chris, the after planet, was there kind of a direct line between what you had done and, and what your presence at Blue Origin or it was kind of you left Planet and then you were looking for your next project and Blue Origin and the, the opportunity of going to space presented itself? Well, it was a five or six year gap um, between me leaving Planet and flying, but <clears throat> I did work on it for that time. Um, so I'd been, I knew that at some point Blue Origin was going to fly. And so I casually in the background petitioned them every time I ran into a Blue Origin person at a conference. Um, you know, I would, I would tell them, Hey, you know, I, I'd love to fly in. I, I think I'd be a great, um, ambassador for your mission. Um, with my background, um, you really, really want me as your first passenger. And they kind of like told me, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. When we, you'll, you'll join our mailing list. You'll find out when we, when we announce sales. And I'm like, no, no, that's not what I'm saying. But, um, anyway, I kept asking them for, for about five years. It wasn't a lot of work, but I was systematic about it. And I wrote a proposal for what I thought I could do for them. And I gave it to someone at some point and they're like, they gave me the same answer. Nice, nice piece of paper, join our mailing list. I'll let you know when sales open. But actually what happened ultimately was because I had done that when they were about to announce the first flight with Jeff Bezos in, of July, uh, Jeff and his, and his crew for, um, for July, 2021, they called me a few months earlier and said, Hey, we're about to begin. Would you like to fly, um, on the first or second flight? And so then the rest is history. What was the, um, what was the most unexpected, um, experience? I mean, we talked a lot about the overview effects, you know, the, looking at the, the planet in perspective with, in context with the outer space, but from the, the gravity the rockets, the coming down, William Shatner, who, you know, you and I were at South by Southwest, um, has a, a, a documentary trying to connect the dots of, of, from that experience. What was it like for you? Yeah. I mean, on a sort of superficial level, the, the, on a visceral level, I guess, I mean, that's what I'm looking for on a visceral level. The, the, one of the really interesting things was, um, the very strange sensation of when the engine turned off and we, um, went into zero gravity. So, um, despite 20 years of training in this industry, I actually didn't know what was going to happen. And, in, and it surprised me. So we're going up and, you know, the rocket basically has about 90 seconds of really high sustained acceleration. So then you're at a really high velocity. They turn the engine off and then you, you are then going fast enough. You coast all the way to space. But when they turn the engine off and I looked at the altitude, we weren't that high yet. And I'm like, Oh my God, it's failed. And I thought we were going to crash into the ground. And then I realized, hang on, we'll actually literally just coast the rest of the way with this velocity. But it took me a second to realize that. But that feeling of when the engine turns off and they throttle down the engine and just suddenly you're just like out of your seat, basically the, the foam almost pushes you out against your seatbelt. It was like really strange. Um, and then the other, the other thing um, that I really... Um, so I guess the most profound thing though, was when I was in at the top of the flight. So we're at, um, at Apogee and we're looking out the window. I felt this kind of like, almost like primitive calling or urge or some kind of pull out of my body, like a force pulling me out into the blackness of space. And not like, you know, like, you know, space horror movie flick where I was getting sucked out the window, but I literally felt like I was being majestically sucked out of the window and cold into the vacuum of space. And, and William Shatner, who, uh, you know, I think was, a, was, it was just so great to have such a poetic, um, articulate co-passenger who could talk directly about his own experience in real time and process his emotions, um, which I'm an engineer. That's very hard for me to do. But so I was glad that he was there, but he and I had very different experiences and, for me, it was the call of the unknown. 
And so a lot of people talk about the overview effect of looking down at the earth. I coined a new phrase, which is the outer view effect, which is the call of the great unknown. And I felt this and I still feel it today, this kind of like just this stretching of my rib cage out into space. Um, and like, if, if there was a, if there was a handle on the, on the d window so I could open the window, I probably under that spell would have walked out the door. I can, um, there is a, um, in the movie deep blue back in the eighties, you know, about, the, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, there's a, there are two endings <laughs> in that movie and, uh, but one of them is like, he goes, he goes down to the bottom and then there's this pool of basically just letting go and, and, and joining the, the dolphin. But it's as someone who's, who's done many, um, wilderness expeditions by myself, I can definitely connect with that feeling of this, this almost primal energy that just wants you to go to these places and connect and experience. So. I definitely, A, I can relate to that. But the other thing that I, that I, um, you made me think of when you had this moment of like, oh my God, this is not working. Uh, I had the, a similar thing when um, there's this, uh, you go up 200 feet up in the air and you're in the, um, on, the, uh, on the harness horizontal and it, they pull you up and then you let go and then you start swinging. And when I was up, up there kind of laying down and looking uh, and ready to go, you expect that your trajectory is going to kind of be smooth. But what it does first is that it goes like this and then it starts to go down. And in that split second, you realize, oh my God, this is not working. I'm going to die. And then, and then you start swinging the adrenaline kicks you up. Um, yeah, so that's the exact feeling. <laughs> so, yeah. So actually, Daniel, I'm curious. Curious, when you were out in the wilderness, did was there ever a moment where you had a feeling like, I'm just going to stay? I know you didn't because you're here today, but did you ever have that feeling of like, oh, I'm just going to keep going. I'm, I'm, I wish I could stay. Did it ever, you ever have that? There, there is, it's, it's a, it's, um, there's a range of, of emotion. I've, I've written at one point how the, my expeditions find a meaning once I I connect with something that is bigger than me. And in that moment, I realize that there's an insight that now I need to share. And in that moment, I know that like, I need to go back because I need to, sh to I need to share that experience until I don't have that moment. There's just this drive that makes me kind of continue and look for something and experience life in, in ways that, you know, I think that few can have the opportunity, but in, in that moment when like the light goes on and I see the world differently, I don't want to be there anymore. Now it's just about, I need to go back and now I need to tell that story and I need to, I need to, to so that, so yes, there's, there's always this desire to stay, but also to come back. And once, when I've been for too long in the city, there's also this pull, this this desire now to go back and be reconnected with the the certain the essence or the simplicity of how the world works around me because in that world it's you don't wake up trying to figure out how you know if you're going to go to Starbucks or if you're going to go and you know take this route or uh, uh, drive there or drive there. It's really about the simplicity of reconnecting, uh, reconnecting with these um, necessity of life, feed yourself, uh, keep you warm, you know, uh, keep you dry and safe and then explore the world and just take it all in. So there's a simplicity in that for, that for me is refreshing, uh, but there's a depth of culture, curiosity, a buzz of the city that I also love. So it's always this kind of, push and pull uh, between the two. Right. So tell us about a little bit of what are you working on, right? Because, you know, you you were involved in some investment firms and but now you're starting your own um, investment company, correct? 
Yeah, so um, I've been doing venture capital investment um, for the last seven years, mostly in space companies, but also other things like robotics and quantum computing and nuclear power. Um, and so um, I'm trying to, what I'm trying to do now is go back to kind of my roots as an early stage investor. I think where I'm kind of the most happy is when I can roll up my sleeves and get on a whiteboard and um, then do some engineering for the day. And I do miss being an engineer. So I'm starting a new early stage investment fund to look at deep tech and climate solutions and space. Um, and the, the, the spirit of that is to find entrepreneurs who have an idea that they don't even know if this is going to work yet. And so find them at day one, um, be their first sort of true believer, and then help them get that idea to the stage where it could be a company. Um, and so that's, that's the new thing. It's called interplanetary capital and, uh, yeah, kind of, it's the name, the name suggests where it's all heading. <laughs> there is a, I do believe that we are about to enter a new era where we're about we're, the, the, I, the, the understanding of the human experience and what is possible will be totally redefined in the next 15 to 25 years, whether it's, you know, with the help of AI, but in terms of energy, in terms of biotech, in terms of of the mobility, I mean, it's. I think that we're just something is just going to totally radicalize the 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 what we can and can't do. And and you're right there on the front stage. You must be excited of what you uh, what you discover on the uh, every day. Well, yeah, actually, I think like one of the things no one no one talks about about the fun part of being an investor is you get to see some really cool stuff. And so I live in Silicon Valley and I, I, there have been times where I've gone to see a company and I've driven up some mountain in the backwoods to a, an 11 room mansion that the, 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 the company's rented. There's been 45 Priuses and Teslas parked out front for the employees showing up for the day. And I go inside to what is basically a secret lab and these guys are building a thing. And the, this has happened a number of times and you get to see really cool inventions and technologies before they are public and, you know, maybe even take part in the story of their creation. And so it's a really fun job. And I have seen some really crazy, some really fun and some really interesting and some really profound things in this job. So it's actually, it's, it's a lot of fun. Now, before we get into your three words of wisdom, I do want to touch on the fact that, yes, you're an engineer. Um, you went to space, you're an investor, but you're also, I mean, you're one of your biggest passions is music. You are a DJ, uh, is, is, was music always like a big outlet for you? Uh, it's tell us more. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I kind of grew, fell in love with, um, computer game music when I was really young and, um, then MTV, of course, stuff like that. But I remember when my, um, you know, I, from my school, I actually never owned a computer growing up. And so when I was in school, I would, I would let the, the, I would ask the school if I could borrow a computer for the summer holidays. And so I'd take home a computer. And what I would do with it was mostly write music on it. And I would use it to program MIDI and using sequences and I would make music and I would try and make recreations of songs. And so this is literally when I'm like, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old, how I'm spending my summer holidays, which is inside in the dark on a, on a Commodore Amiga or an Apple II or later on an Apple Macintosh, um, making it do bleeps and boops and stuff. And then thinking that was really, really cool. And so I've just kind of been an electronic musician in the background for forever. And when I was working at NASA, I would, um, before, before airplanes had Wi-Fi, I would write a lot of this music. I was still writing it. Uh, if I was on a plane and I had a 12 hour flight somewhere, I'd write music. And so I found one day that I had hundreds of compositions on my laptop. I'm like, I should do something with these. So I started to release, um, some of it online and, um, then I got excited and started writing a lot more. And so one of the things I'm working on now is a small EP of music about my trip to space with, with um, William Shatner and Audrey Powers and Glenn DeVries. Um, and I want to write about that experience and the journey of how I got there, um, what the flight was like and how I feel now. So I'm putting those into song form 
and then then making some music videos as well with some of the footage from my flight so it's sort of like a great outlet and is it a hobby or is it my full-time job now i'm not sure sometimes but um you know i think for me i've loved space and music equally and to be honest we need musicians in space right um you know we need everybody electronic uh, you know lawyers doctors plumbers electricians yeah and musicians and artists so um i'm quite happy living in both worlds as a kind of half space half music guy can you give us the uh the back the backstory behind your name i'm dr crispy well it's kind of silly but my last name is bosshausen which is really hard to spell and so a lot of my friends call me chris b because sometimes there's two chrises so crispy if you mumble it sounds like crispy and so a lot of my friends from the nasa era just called me crispy as a nickname and then when i was looking at dj names i had some really bad ideas and they were like nope it's crispy <laughs> so um that's my friends vetoed my ideas and and so i remain crispy what was uh what was for them uh one of your worst ideas as a dj name dj gyro because i was thinking like gyroscope but in obviously in europe it almost looks like dj euro um <laughs> and uh, it just doesn't work <laughs> and you're going to be spinning at uh Euro's night in LA in April and also uh the one on Space Coast uh Euro's night correct yeah and i have this um i've, I've tr- decided to raise the stakes a little bit so i have a full light show that i'm putting together for for the two things so i've made some um new videos that talk about the different aspects of the journey of of space exploration and the human experience of that so i'm going to be debuting those alongside some music um and some other cool visual effects and stuff so kind of i don't know what i've gotten into <laughs> talk to me afterwards to see how it went but i'm going to be vjing and djing at the same time with some some cool original space uh tribute stuff well people will enjoy i'm sure looking forward now Chris, as someone who with an engineer background um got a worked at NASA uh, was a DJ went up to space uh investment uh person with the the, the company new planet and and all the, the different experiences as a business person but also as a human person as and as an artist what would be three your three words of wisdom I was going to say never give up but that gets overused so <clears throat> I actually think a better one would be it takes time and it was 27 years almost to the day from me applying to the Australian Air Force and getting rejected and then to me flying on Blue Origin and that's a long time and I often think well what if what if I just gave up what if I said at 10 years I spent 10 years on this idea and it's not working I'm going to give up. Well actually I hadn't even got to NASA yet by then. Or if I'd said 15 years, well I wouldn't have started Planet, so I would have just given up early. Or even 25, right? Humans like round numbers. So what if I'd given up at 25 years? I've dedicated an entire quarter of a century to this idea that I'm going to go to space. I must be fooling myself. I haven't got there yet. It's never going to happen. Time to do something else. And I every day I think about those paths not taken. And in my case, I just have this brain defect where I just never gave up and never occurred to me to really quit. And I just was like, "Eh, I don't know. I'll just keep trying." And that my entire secret to success was being dumb enough to not quit. And that's it. And and people say, well, like how do you achieve something really big? It turns out just be dumb enough to not quit. Because it'll eventually you've just got to keep working at it. And it took me 27 years of various attempts and like NASA was an attempt at changing the industry. Planet was an attempt at changing the industry. My VC thing was an attempt at changing the industry. Um some of the earlier things I did like Singularity University was an attempt at changing the industry. um just to rearrange the world so that this could actually happen and it took 27 years so I'm glad I didn't give up at the magic number of 25 right because I wouldn't have done it and so that's the secret is and I just want to tell everyone listening and you know young or old 
it you whatever you want to do you can do if you just don't give up and so that saying never give up gets overused but what does it really mean it just means be okay waiting and just keep working at it and that's it and um yeah i i'm so glad that i never quit i think it's the um you know, the, in my younger days, I used to, I did a little bit of, I was an agent for photographers and painters. And I realized that the, the, the artists or the photographers or the painters who do end up becoming successful are not always the best ones, but they're the ones who are willing to put themselves out there. They're, you know, they're a bit hustle. And it's the same thing about ideas or the successful people. It's not always the best ideas that um, come out. It's the ones that are keep being pushed. And often it's more of the, it's the, the ones that are resilient, that don't get, don't give up um, and keep pushing until, you know, something happens. And, and sometimes it's not the idea that you started with because it, it evolved, it became something more. And then you look back and you go, well, you know, it was a little bit naive, but all the knowledge and the experience that you accumulated in the process makes you, you know, create something even better. So, yes. And and we're going to try not to put the uh, Rick Hesley's uh, song uh, at the same time. <laughs> we're going to give you up. Yeah, I'd be happy if we ended on a Rick roll. Rick um, <laughs> actually, um, but the, yeah, one of the, cool things about it is just you just never know right it, you, i always had a sense of quality like i knew what i wanted i just didn't know how i'd get there or what what the path would look like or what the actual um, way in which it would show up would be on so it's like i knew the big picture but i didn't know the details and so i tried a lot of stuff and a lot of it failed along the way right i mean it, like you said you just don't know what's going to work or not work and maybe you pivot but it's the sense of quality of my destination that I never gave up on. I knew how that destination would feel. Um, and then every opportunity that came through my life, I could just apply a simple test. Does that feel like that or not? And if it does work on it and if it failed, okay, start another one. Well, don't give up, Chris, continue doing um, all the amazing things, whether it's the, the light show, the music show, uh, whatever investment that you're going to find uh, yourself connected with because you've uh, done amazing things and uh, just I can't wait to see uh, what the next 50 years for you are going to going to bring. So uh, don't give up. Thank you so much, Chris. Thanks, Daniel. Great to chat today.